Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am just kind of getting my seatbelt on, getting the rearview mirror adjusted, and just getting ready and set to go for a great show. I just raced into the studio. I had a quick exchange uh, with Susie Larson, who just had a guest in that I I just met for the first time. Looking forward to hearing that hour. And then uh, today, we've got Rob Louie coming up in just a minute. Then Dr. Alex McFarlane will be joining me. And then Jeff Redorn is going to be hour two. We're going to go through John 316 for the whole hour. It's going to be a great day. Rob Louie, of course, is the executive editor at The Daily Signal and always my Tuesday guest to get things started. Rob, welcome. It's great to be back, Bill. Thanks. Yeah, no kidding. Well, did you, uh, what happened yesterday in D.C. with Mar- uh, Martin Luther King Day? Well, it was uh, it was a quiet day uh, for the most part, um, in part because we were recovering from yet another snowstorm. I mean, oh, yeah. Just one after the other here uh, here in this uh, this short span of time. And, you know, uh, D.C. and Virginia and the surrounding areas do not uh, deal well with, uh, with poor weather. But um, it was a day to honor uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and recognize at a time when our country is divided on issues of race, uh, that his famous speech, uh, the March on Washington, where he encouraged Americans to judge each other, uh, not by the color of our skin, but the content of our character, is uh, is a belief that uh, hopefully will lead us to a better place in the future. And so I think that uh, regardless of your opinion on Dr. King, the words that he said there are still uh, still very true for, I think, the ideals that uh, we should hold up for ourselves and our family. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin uh, started his role as governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And what is your uh, thoughts on that? Well, he certainly did. And he's uh, he started with a, a lot of activity. So he was sworn into office on Saturday. I actually had, I think, 40 years worth of governors in attendance. The only one was Terry McAuliffe, who I think was quarantining uh, at the time. Uh, so it was nice to really see both Democrats and Republicans, Virginia, as you and your listeners know, is a state that has elected both Republicans and Democrats. And, uh, and so for the governor to have that kind of support and backing on day one was, was encouraging and a sign of maybe hopeful things to come. Uh, but he didn't waste much time getting, getting to business. Uh, a lot of the steps that he took early on uh, had to do with COVID. He uh, had an executive order which told schools that they could not force kids to wear masks if their parents uh, decided that the kids uh, shouldn't wear them. There are a lot of parents who have concerns about their kids being in a mask all day, every day of the week while at school. Uh, several school districts, including the one where my, my kids go, uh, have said that they're going to resist that uh, executive action and probably challenge it. So we'll, we'll see how that ultimately plays out. Uh, but he took other steps, uh, like banning critical race theory in schools. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's early in his administration. Uh, I think that they probably had one of their first cabinet meetings today, uh, but it's an encouraging sign. And I'll tell you uh, also, I can't remember if we've talked about this with your listeners, Bill, but our former president, Heritage Foundation's uh, Kay James, uh, was selected as the Secretary of the Commonwealth. So she will be in charge of 
all a lot of the personnel decisions that are made by his administration. And as, uh, as we've long said, personnel is policy. So having a solid and strong conservative like Kay James in that role is an encouraging sign early on in the Yunkin administration. Yeah, you did mention that before, but that I like hearing it again. She's in a nice position to do a lot of good. So thank you for that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I would love for you to take us through this uh, voting rights speech and some of the uh, initiatives and proposals and uh, what that is all about. Yes. So what we find ourselves uh, in in a situation, and this is actually a little bit of a surprise because the U.S. Senate was supposed to be on recess this week uh, coming out of the Martin Luther King Day holiday. They were going to be spending it back in their states. Instead, they're across the street from me at the U.S. Capitol getting ready to have a big showdown over the filibuster and the voting rights issue. Now, if you're a Democrat, uh, what you say is happening is that uh, Republicans are obstructing, and you have a couple of Democratic holdouts, Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema, who are refusing to go along with the change to Senate rules. And they obviously are locked in a 50-50 tie between Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. So unless you have everybody on board and can have the vice president cast a tie-breaking vote in favor of the Democrats, uh, there's really no other way to, to overcome some of the historic rules, including the 180-year-old uh, Senate rule that, uh, that, that really governs how things operate in that chamber. And that requires 60 votes to, to uh, bring together parties. It was, the Senate was not designed to be like the U.S. House of Representatives, where a simple majority ruled. Uh, but the Democrats want to change that, particularly when it comes to this issue of voting. And they have a series of bills that they've been trying to advance now for over a year. And they're stuck because they cannot get the, to the 60 votes on these particular bills. Now, uh, there are Republicans who are willing to make other changes to other laws, just not the ones that the Democrats want to advance. So it's not that you won't have some action. You might have people maybe making amendments to the Electoral Count Act, which came into dispute when President Trump asked uh, the vice president, Mike Pence, uh, to, to make a decision uh, as the, the chair overseeing the Electoral College count. Uh, but that's a separate issue uh, from what's going to be debated uh, in the in the Senate today and this week. And so I expect what the Democrats are doing to fail, Bill. I don't think that it's going to uh, to overcome any of those challenges that I've just outlined. Uh, but I expect that they'll continue to make noise on this issue. They know that it's popular among their base. Uh, uh, President Biden had recently gave a speech in Atlanta uh, calling for this to happen. And one final point on this, uh, Senator Schumer Former Senator Biden, when he was uh, spending so many years in that chamber, have all advocated against making these changes mm-hmm. when they were in the minority. Uh, so they, they did not want to give the Republicans the ability to ram through things on a simple majority vote. Now that they're in the majority and they, uh, they can have the tie-breaking vote, they seem to have changed their tune. So I think that uh, my hope is that uh, cooler heads will prevail here and we'll have a situation where the Senate does not abandon this long tradition and uh, hopefully senators can continue to work together and find areas to compromise and, uh, and come up with other uh, legislation that isn't as uh, radical and extreme as the one that they're trying to advance. Rob, I would love to have more conversation about this. It seems that in 2020, the Democrats used the filibuster 327 times. So this is something that they rely upon. So is wanting to do away with it for the voting rights, is that something that is just a Hail Mary? Because they know that will come back to, to bite them, right? Well, well, certainly, and and both both Republicans and Democrats have used the the filibuster uh, when they've they've been in the minority. 
just to take a step back, the U.S. Senate operates on something called unanimous consent. So you need, and, and it means exactly what it sounds like, you need all 100 senators to be in agreement and con- to consent to something for it to happen. One senator could throw a wrench in the whole operations of the U.S. Senate simply by objecting to everything, everything from from, you know, voting on the most mundane things that, that come across that body uh, to, you know, to to just operating in general. And so that's why I think that a tool like the filibuster shouldn't be viewed as something you just randomly throw out mm-hmm. uh, because the Democrats can't get their way on this particular issue, but something that brings the parties together, brings Republicans and Democrats together to the table to have conversations. And if they can't find agreement on it, perhaps it's not the right moment or time uh, to advance that piece of legislation. And you either go back to the drawing board and try to start over again or, uh, or you do something different. But you're absolutely right, Bill. Uh, the Democrats have used this uh, time and time again, hundreds of times, uh, to block Republicans from doing things. And I have no doubt that if the midterm elections go the way that the polls suggest and Republicans take control of the House and the Senate – uh, that you'll have Democrats attempting to use it once again uh, to to block Republicans from doing what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So from 1917 to 1971, the filibuster, um, there were a, a total of 58 motions to break a filibuster that whole time. And last right. year alone, there were five times as many. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing, uh, particularly when it comes... So we, we've been talking about legislation here in the context mm-hmm. of the voting, voting yes. rights. But also the Senate plays an important role in confirming the president's nominees, both judicial nominees like Supreme Court justices, as well as executive uh, branch selections. Uh, The secretary of state, for instance, needs confirmation. And there have been changes over the years to the confirmation process for nominees, some of those initiated by Democrats, other ones confirmed by Republicans. And that's happened both in Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. And I I think that uh, one of the things that we do at the Heritage Foundation, and we we track closely at the Daily Signal, is this uh, confirmation process. And you're, you're absolutely right that it has become much more politicized, and it takes a lot more effort on the part of senators to get things done. And I think it's disappointing that, um, that the senators have decided to, to play politics like this, but it absolutely does take a long time. Now, at the same time, Bill, your listeners should know that, that President Biden, uh, despite the fact that President Trump had a record pace of judicial confirmations, President Biden in just his first year was able to surpass that. So mm-hmm. they are still getting things done when they want to get things done. And, and when he's not setting up controversial nominees, but there are other issues where there should be important and legitimate debate that are, are sometimes getting bogged down into the weeds of legislating, which is just part of the process. Yeah, it's uh, they often talk about politics as being making sausage. Nobody wants to see it, but it certainly seems like it's a, a very difficult process that never seems very pretty to anybody. That's right. It sometimes does take years for these things to happen. And it uh, sometimes is in a in a Republican. It, it require we have right now a, a Democrat in the White House. We have Democrats controlling both the House and the Senate. They have been able to get things done. Uh, they have been able to get things done on a bipartisan basis. Now, sometimes the far left and the right don't agree on those things like the infrastructure bill. Uh, those on the left wanted to be to spend more money. Those uh, among conservatives on the right uh, probably thought to spend way too much money, including us at the Heritage Foundation. But there was a group of senators 
I think there were something like 39 or something in total Republicans who were voting with Democrats on that. So oh. it just goes to show, Bill, that there is still an ability for members of Congress to come together on issues. And uh, taking steps like this are probably not uh, as drastic as what we need right now. Mm-hmm. Rob, what do you perceive to be the ways in which people are treating each other right now in terms of uh, politicians? Are, are people showing greater civility, less civility? What are you seeing in Washington? I, I think that, and this is directly from the, the, the words of a sitting member of Congress, uh, who I won't name, but said that it's really disappointing that members of Congress uh, from different parties really have very limited interaction. Okay. Uh, and I think that that is perhaps a breakdown in that civility that you talk about. Maybe mm-hmm. they feel that if they can't say anything nice to each other, they won't say anything at all. And uh, and oftentimes where those conversations should be taking place at committee hearings or uh, legislative markups and, and things that used to function relatively seamlessly, if not, you know, if, if that there, there were obviously hiccups in the road going back to President Reagan and Tip O'Neill, who was the then Speaker of the House in the 1980s. Uh, but at the end of the day, as I think Reagan or, or O'Neill famously said, they were able to set aside of differences and, and have a glass of beer together, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, that is not something that seems to be happening now in Washington. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's in part, uh, there's no one single person to blame for it, but some of the divisive rhetoric certainly doesn't encourage it. And one of the things that I, I am encouraged by, though, is I think the next generation, a younger generation, uh, has little patience for this, uh, this, this type of behavior. And I don't know if over time we'll start to see that change as, uh, as you have more and more members of Congress uh, seeking options. I will tell you one area where there has seemed to be some sort of consensus, and that's on China. There, ha- there was oh. just a, a piece of legislation passed recently uh, to, to require the United States to hold China accountable uh, for, for the human rights abuses taking place uh, by China against the Uyghur Muslims. And mm-hmm. that brought together both Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill to pass overwhelmingly. Nice. So, so not every issue is a tough one, Bill. Just, uh, just some of the ones domestically, like voting, seem to, to be a struggle right now. Yeah, I so appreciate your perspective, Rob. Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. When we come back, we're going to chat a little bit about inflation and small businesses. We'll be right back. walk-up music chosen by his oldest son, I believe. You guys worked on that together, didn't you, Rob? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we were so musically inclined that we could perform something <laughs> for you, Bill. <laughs> that would be nice. All right. The consumer price index increased by 0.5% in December. That's getting to be pretty high uh, when we look at inflation. It's the highest level since 1982. It certainly is. It is. Uh, it, it is off the charts, uh, frankly, and the American people are, are starting to feel it um, each each week uh, as as we go on. And I don't know that there's there's really any end in sight at this point. I mean, the White House seems to suggest that maybe December was the high point, mm-hmm. or it'll, it'll sometime 
uh, in the new year uh, start to level out. But it's uh, it's concerning because it, it does uh, it does really impact us in ways that uh, th- that we might not feel right now, but will over the course of time start to have a big impact. And and one of the things that I think is is particularly troubling. I mean, so many businesses and organizations. Uh, have just started a new budget year, mm-hmm. uh, so employees are having performance reviews. Managers are having conversations about compensation, and if you have uh, the prices at the grocery store, or the gas pump, or other places going up upwards of you know double digits, uh, anywhere from seven percent to you know maybe fifteen percent. Rental cars, I mean, are just off, off the charts, and you're not going to be able to increase somebody's salary. Uh, by that percentage. Uh, a lot of places won't be able to do that or they simply would go out of business. And and so what that means is that uh, the paycheck that you're bringing home just isn't, uh, you know, carrying as much anymore as a result of that. So, uh, you know, it's it's going to be a challenge for, for the American people. And I think it's one of the reasons why uh, we are um, in a situation where we were just talking about Congress. It's It's not the time for Congress to go spend more money, uh, more taxpayer dollars, I think we need uh, more fiscal prudence coming out of Washington and solutions that help lower uh, this inflation. And small businesses, Rob, just to continue talking about them a little bit, they're, they are the backbone of our economy. And if, we, if they're going to be suffering significantly coming up in the next six months, to me that trend is not good. It, right. It's, it's, not, it's not good at all. Um, that, is, uh, that, that is absolutely true. I mean, uh, f- first of all, uh, some, a bit of good news uh, for a lot of businesses. Now, these are small businesses. I don't know what your definition of a small business is, uh, but I mean, there are small businesses that have, you know, between uh, 100 and maybe 200 employees. And they got a sigh of relief last week when the U.S. Supreme Court decided on Thursday that the OSHA uh, vaccine mm-hmm. mandate uh, would not be uh, would not would not proceed. Uh, so effectively, that initiative uh, spurred on by uh, by President Biden himself um, is is dead and uh, will not uh, will not be required. Many small businesses. Uh, the case was, by the way, uh, we filed a, a lawsuit. The Heritage Foundation did. We have over a hundred uh, employees here in our office in Washington D.C. But the case was argued by the National Federation of Independent Business, which represents small business. And they talked directly about the costs of doing so. And I know you and I have. I don't think people really recognize the, the burden that this was going to place on businesses where they had – they were OSHA was asking each business to keep a record of private medical data for each of their employees. And when they came and knocked on your door, they would give you a mere four hours to turn over all of this data. Otherwise, you know, you would be potentially held liable and fined – a hundred, a thousand dollars or more uh, for violating OSHA's regulations. So it's these types of burdens that government's putting on small businesses on top of inflation and supply chain that I think are causing so many to um, to really be in a state of panic and, and hoping for a better outcome in 2022. Mm-hmm. Rob, you recently sat down with Hugo Gurdon, editor-in-chief of the Washington Examiner. Tell us what that was like. Yeah, so Hugo is uh, is, is just a, a great uh, editor. He's uh, somebody who's launched a new initiative at the Examiner called Restoring America. And I think that this is something that really I've heard from so many people. Uh, they're concerned about the left chipping away at our traditional American values. As Hugo said, it's not something that happened, you know, in, in one moment. It's happened over the course of decades now, probably dating back to the late 50s or, or 1960s, 
when uh, we started to have these cultural forces uh, change some of the, the fundamental characteristics of, of our society. And whether it be an issue uh, like the life issue that's going to be front and center this week in Washington, D.C. with the March for Life or issues of, uh, of sex and, uh, and, and individuals uh, declaring that they're no longer a male or a female and school districts trying to change policies that allow biological men into to girls uh, bathrooms and locker rooms, all of those types of things, I think, have caused a lot of Americans to question uh, what direction our country is headed. And so that's exactly what they're trying to do with this Restoring America campaign. And I think it's something that, uh, that we uh, should all be concerned about, whether, whether we're Christians or conservatives or just, just patriotic Americans. Uh, there is, there is a, a cultural aspect about our country that we should want to preserve. That doesn't mean we have to be stuck in a particular moment of time. I think progress is good, Bill. But at the same time, I don't think we should radically throw out all of the ideas that came with the founding of our country um, simply because we don't always agree with them. Mm-hmm. That full interview with Rob and Hugo is available at the dailysignal.com. You can always head to dailysignal.com and check it out. Um, tell us a little bit more about the March for Life. When is that and how many people do they expect? The March for Life is coming up this Friday. Uh, This is uh, obviously a signature event uh, for the pro-life movement. Uh, Tens of thousands, uh, depending on the weather, maybe hundreds of thousands of people uh, come to Washington, D.C. each January. They've they've come during snowstorms or or freezing cold temperatures, and uh, they will turn out this year uh, on the cusp of a major decision, which we expect in June by the U.S. Supreme Court, which could overturn Roe v. Wade. The March for Life started in 1974, the year after the Roe v. Wade decision was handed down, uh, as, a, as a moment uh, to, to remember the lives lost uh, due to abortion, and uh, that's exactly what, uh, what they'll be doing again this year. And I think it's such an important event, Bill. Um, we've, we've covered the March for Life every year at the Daily Signal, and we'll be doing so again this year. In fact, the Heritage Foundation is opening its doors uh, to those who are marching. So if any of your listeners are in Washington, uh, stop by 214 Massachusetts Avenue Northeast and say hello. Um, it's, uh, it's a time uh, when we certainly want to support our friends in the pro-life community. All right. Thank you very much, Rob, for um spending time with us today. I always look forward to hearing from you, and, and uh, I, I always appreciate you taking time to be on Faith Radio. Thank you, Bill. Have yep. a great week. Have a great day. Rob Bluey has been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. Say, uh, starting, what is it, yesterday we started reading the Bible together through the book of Acts, and we're going to do that until February 6th, so you can learn about generosity, being inspired and equipped by God and the early church as we read the book of Acts together. Um, So you read a chapter of Acts each day starting February 1st. So it doesn't start until February 1st. You know, I'm the last one to know. I should I should not be making these announcements ever. <laughs> I was having fun on this side of the microphone. You were just going. <laughs> hanging me out to dry, weren't you? <laughs> well, not completely, but I did kind of enjoy it. Well, I mean, is that is that horrible? But the, right now, no one can see how red I am, <laughs> except you. And that's not fair either. <laughs> well, they can hear me laughing, though, which you know, good ah, or bad, okay. I'm not sure. All right, so I the, think that's the, more you can sign up. up. You can starting yesterday. You can sign up, but the reading starts on February first. Exactly. Oh, that's much better. All right. So you can uh, head over to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up to read the Book of Acts together. It's going to be great. So after a short break, we're going to talk to our good friend, Dr. Alex McFarlane. That's all next.
I have missed my friend Alex McFarlane. He, I think between the Christmas break and everything else and all of his busy speaking engagements, we have not connected, but we are going to do it today. Uh, of course, he is a speaker, an author, an educator. He holds uh, seminars and uh, all kinds of amazing evangelical events. He once in one year preached in all 50 states. Do I have that right, Alex? Yeah, we did. Yeah, uh, that's crazy. 50 states in 50 days. Yeah, when I say that, I always have to pause and go, am I saying that right? Because <laughs> it is pretty remarkable what God allowed you to do. Uh, well, I give God the glory. And, hey, I've missed you, man. Likewise. You and I, we, we usually talk about every other week or so, yep. and it's just a, a key part of something I look forward to. And yeah, thank you. You're right with Christmas and everything. But I've got to commend you, Bill. The, this was the first time I heard that new bumper music. The Bill Arnold said that was cool. Nice. Well, we yeah, I I think it's people like it. Which yeah. When did you uh, get that new bumper music? Well, I had it originally for the morning show, and I used my friend who is in the band Go Fish. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that band, but he uh, uh, wrote it and sang it and produced it for me, and I uh, thought. This is great. So I used it for the morning, and then I said, hey, I'm taking the afternoon show. Can you rework it? And he said, yep, I sure can. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, hey, kudos. But um, Happy New Year, and yeah. we are well into 2022. Uh, what's the latest, my friend? Well, I'm interested in hearing about your keynote speech you had recently in Dallas. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, the Lord is so good. And, Bill, for a safe center to open the Scriptures anywhere is an honor. But I had just, honestly, one of the greatest um, humbling, surreal, unforgettable moments of my ministerial life. This past weekend, I was in Dallas, Texas, and uh, First Baptist Church had a a service for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and I was asked to speak, and that in itself is a great honor. But they... um, This group that deals with biblical worldview and a lot of members of First Baptist Church, Dr. Robert Jeffers, but a lot of people from the the greater Dallas community, um, they they have a study group and they talk about Christian worldview. Well, they had a service in the courtroom uh, of Roe versus Wade so that we're at the courthouse in Dallas, Texas, and it was packed. A hundred-year-old courthouse, still used, um, still in regular use. But um, the backstory of Roe versus Wade, I don't know if everybody knows this backstory. Is, as everybody knows, 1973, the Roe versus Wade court decision legalized abortion in America. Now, Bill, prior to that, uh, abortion was generally not permitted in America. Uh, except in rare cases like the life of the mother, but that's, you know, like less than uh, two-tenths of a percent of all the pregnancies. Now, why were we a nation where abortion was illegal? Well, because we were a nation based on natural law, and the Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights talk about the inherent inalienable rights that all humans have, and the most fundamental of of that being the right to life. So I got to speak Sunday in the courtroom 
where the decision was rendered that took away legal protection for the unborn. Mm. And uh, it, it was surreal. But let me tell you what was really surreal. Um, okay, I've often shared this story about uh, the courtroom in Nuremberg, in the, in the Palace of Justice, Nuremberg, courtroom A1. That was where the Nazi war criminals were tried. And in 1943 to 1948, and the defense of the Nazi war criminals was that, well, um, the Holocaust was legitimate because we passed a law, and we we made it legal for us to do what we did. Mm. And, of course, the prosecution, the, the court of world opinion said, yeah, but there's a higher law written on every heart, and you really did know it. And you might have put ink on paper. You may have passed a law, quote-unquote, but there's a higher law. And in condemning uh, the Third Reich and the genocide against the Jews, uh, we appeal to this higher law that everybody has on their heart, and you're, you're guilty. And, and I've often shared this story, Bill. What's ironic that people don't realize, the Nuremberg courtroom, which, by the way, was used up until February of 2020. It was decommissioned in February of 2020. It had been a courtroom up until, you know, two years ago, and now it's a museum. But in that very same courtroom where the Nazi war criminals were tried, uh, 20 years prior, Adolf Hitler in that very same courtroom had given his sort of coming out speech that he would Bill the master race. Now, ironic, and there were the Nuremberg rallies. So Hitler spoke in that courtroom in 1927, held the Nuremberg rallies in 1936, but his Third Reich henchmen were tried there in the 40s. What's ironic is, on the wall of the Nuremberg courtroom, on one end of the room, uh, on this wall, is about a six-foot-tall cross. And opposite, on the other end of the, the, the wall, is uh, Moses and the Ten Commandments, our Moses and the Ten Commandments. Hmm. So I've often said, isn't it ironic that um, a worldview responsible for the death of five and a half, six and a half million people was publicly launched in the shadow of the cross and the Ten Commandments? I've shared that illustration many times. Well, here's the thing. I was in the, the Roe versus Wade courtroom speaking Sunday, and there's the judicial bench where the judges made a decision that would result in the death of 62.5 million people and counting. And guess what's on the wall about a, a three-foot-long brass plaque, unmistakable huge plaque that's been there 100 years, says, in God we trust. Isn't that ironic? <clears throat> because the Roe versus Wade decision not only created a, an industry, a profitable industry called the abortion industry, but it also cut us loose from our Judeo-Christian moral foundation, natural law, and really in the aftermath, so many dominoes fell, gay marriage, transgenderism, uh, so many things that have left us as a, a nation really so morally adrift. 
Uh, Bill, I've got to believe those judges that rendered the Roe versus Wade decision, I mean, they couldn't have known the Pandora's box they were opening. But I stood there in that exact spot and preached the gospel and gave a lecture Sunday night. And um, I really thank God I, I wasn't worthy of such a great honor. But I... And one last thing, Bill, I'll throw back to you. You know what's really ironic is you can look out the window of the row courtroom and just a couple of blocks away see the place where John F. Kennedy was shot. And uh, there's got to be uh, the, the invisible, unseen spiritual warfare battle going on all around us. I mean, I've got to believe, you know, our nation... So uh, it was such a pivotal moment um, when President Kennedy was assassinated. And then just a few feet away, 10 years later, would be the decision that would really be the most fundamental, tragically wrong decision in our nation's history, Roe versus Wade. A lot of spiritual dynamics at play there. Would you agree? Oh, would I ever. And what a stunning illustration, not only of the Nuremberg illustration, but also the, in God we trust, brass plate in the courtroom. Well, you know, a lot of people, I don't, I don't know, did you happen to see probably four or five weeks ago the death of Sue Weddington? No. Okay, Sue Weddington was a pastor's daughter, and in 1969 she was in law school and got pregnant and wanted to get an abortion. And she, they say she was enraged to find out that in Texas, abortion was not legal. So she got an abortion in Mexico, finished law school, and sued the district attorney, Henry Wade. And, you know, she died just a few weeks ago. Sue Weddington, the, the infamous lawyer who put in motion. And see, it was she in that very courtroom where I spoke Sunday night that um, she argued that it was a right to privacy. You know, the Constitution uh, protects our rights, and uh, a woman should have the right to make this decision uh, and, in private, terminate a pregnancy. Um, Pregnancies start and end in private. And so, unthinkably, and scholars at the time and throughout the last 49 years have said, you know, this is crazy. I mean, I mean, is a bank robbery okay as long as you do it in private? You know, I mean, just because something is done under the cloak of privacy doesn't make it morally right. But she successfully got that through. And that, that was, let me say, that was um, uh, an impressive bit of rhetoric to sell abortion on that grounds that it was a, a right to privacy. Because, I mean, just think if you, I mean, I won't even give hypothetical examples, but merely because something's done in private doesn't make it morally right, you know. But um, I, I just, I got there and I thought, well, how could they make this decision that, as I said, set in motion so many dominoes that would fall? And I, I would argue that we are the, the lawless nation we are and very probably under the judgment of God because of, of that decision. I mean, you, you know, I've, I've got to say that 62 and a half million babies killed. Um, Sue Weddington would look at, at Adolf Hitler and say, amateur, you hmm. know? Yeah. 
I mean, it would take 10 Adolf Hitlers to equal the number of human beings that we've killed since 1973. So uh, it really is, I, I believe it is the, the most important spiritual issue of our time. And, and let me just say this, lest any of your listeners say, well, oh, sure, you're pro-life, you're a conservative Christian. Um, let me tell you who was pro-life, a, a, a man that I knew. He was an atheist named Christopher Hitchens, the, the famed atheist Christopher Hitchens. I debated him. I moderated one of his debates. I interviewed him on the radio. Up until his death, I believe it was December of 2012, we emailed back and forth. I'm, regarding the issue of life, I want to quote Christopher Hitchens because there are an increasing number of people that are secularists that are pro-life. And I want to say this, lest anybody argue the pro-choice position saying, well, you guys are Christians, separation of church and state. I, I want to submit, and maybe we could talk about this another day, but Bill, morality and religion are two different things. In America, we have freedom of religious expression. You can be religious or non-religious. That is your choice. But what's so dangerous is the uh, separation of church and state idea has been parlayed to the point that most Americans nowadays assume there are no, no moral boundaries. Uh, and uh, th that's wrong. That's what's so dangerous. Yes, it's freedom of religion. You can be a Christian or you cannot be a Christian. That's your choice. Although I obviously wish people would know the Lord and be Christians. But um, the freedom of religion and the non-establishment of religion of the First Amendment, the founders in no way construed that to mean there are no morals whatsoever. And yet that's, that's really kind of where we are. Hmm. But Christopher Hitchens, he was an atheist, and we talked about this, and he famously, he said um, that, now listen very carefully, the unborn is a human, he said, to say otherwise is nonsense. And he was a brilliant man. I'm sorry he was an atheist, but Hitchens was a smart guy. He said the, the unborn is a human being and is therefore a member of society, do all of the rights promised by the Constitution. And Christopher Hitchens said the expectant mother should not have the right alone to unilaterally make the decision about the death of another human, including the human she carries. That, um, and so he said, I'm pro-life, not based on any belief in spiritual things, because he was an atheist, sadly. But my point being, um, we, Christian or not, believer or unbeliever, we all have a vested interest in the end of abortion. Because if we don't recover a moral compass, we're going to lose our nation. Mm. So good, Alex. I also remember saying that what is done in private always has public implications. Amen. Yeah. Well, well let me just say this. Unintended consequences are still consequences. It, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I know those judges that rendered the road decision 
they 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 couldn't have envisioned defund the police and the lawlessness of the 21st century uh but look un like i said unintended consequences are still consequences that's true let me take a short break dr alex mcfarlane is my guest we're be right back 90 seconds Alex McFarlane on the show today. He's a Christian apologist. He's an author, evangelist. He's a religion and culture analyst, advocate for biblical truth, and a friend of the Afternoon with Bill Arnold show, which makes me the happiest of all. So, Alex, I, I just during the break, Rosie and I were shaking our heads thinking, that is an amazing comment made by Christopher Hitchens, who is an atheist who understood life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And notice, notice that Hitchens... And by the way, he wrote a great biography of Thomas Jefferson called uh, Thomas Jeff. I believe the title was Thomas Jefferson, the First American. And you know what's interesting was Hitchens was an atheist, but and and he and I talked about this on several occasions. He keenly understood that the genius of America was the fact that we had this objective moral foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, now. Hitchens passionately believed, as I do, in what we call natural law. By the way, C.S. Lewis wrote a book in 1943 called The Abolition of Man. And, and more recently, um, a wonderful guy from the political science department of University of Texas at Austin, Jay Budziszewski, wrote kind of a, an, a restating of this called What You Can't Not Know. Mm. That's a great book title, What I You Can't it. Not Know. But it's, natural law says, look... There, there's right and wrong, and everybody knows it. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, where you live. If you're a human being, there will come a time when the moral light bulb will be switched on, and deep in your heart, you'll know that lying is wrong, stealing is wrong, slandering, bearing false witness against somebody is wrong, murder is wrong, and you know what? It's interesting. The, the natural law written on the, the, the psyche of all human beings, and it's interesting, Lewis documents in The Abolition of Man, uh, you know, Egyptian, Sumerian, Jewish, Asian, Roman, throughout all of the centuries, from the Code of Hammurabi to Exodus 17 and Moses and the Ten Commandments, uh, Aristotle, the Greeks knew it, there's this knowledge of right and wrong, and every culture's moral code looks very, very, very similar. You don't lie, you don't steal, you don't murder, you don't commit adultery, you don't take your neighbor's spouse, you don't give a false report. Now, Bill, I'm, I'm not saying that we always do what's right, but deep in our heart we know what's right. And we often do what's wrong, but there's also... Along with the, 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 the moral prohibitions, there are the moral imperatives of stuff we ought to do. If you see, you know, um, a, a, a little old lady fall down in traffic, 
you're compelled to help help her get out of harm's way you know if and that's why we are moved with compassion you know we hear about people that are hungry and we want them fed you know we we hear about orphans that are homeless and we either want to adopt them or help them find a home so you know inarguably Benjamin Franklin wrote about this there is this moral compass engraved in the soul of all people and Hitchens knew that and uh, he thought that was part of America's greatness and even though he himself was not a religious man I mean goodness from thinkers like like I've mentioned from C.S. Lewis to Thomas Jefferson to Christopher Hitchens to Jay Budzieszewski to people like Chuck Colson you know one of the things that persuaded Charles Colson uh, the probably the the number one um, criminal of the Watergate um, case but he he said look there is this moral awareness it had to come from somewhere and a lot of people have moved from acknowledgement of the moral code to the moral lawgiver to how do we make right with the the lawgiver of the universe uh, we've known the right we've done the wrong how do we get straight with God it's through his son Jesus Alex and, I, oh I'm sorry uh, go ahead I, I keep a, another Christopher Hitchens quote in a little file on my computer and he was being interviewed by a, a, a woman who was considered herself herself a liberal Christian. I, I don't know if you've heard this quote, but... Oh, it's priceless. It is priceless. And it goes like this. The, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make an, a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Hitchens says, to his credit... I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you really not in any meaningful way sense are a Christian. Amen. Yeah, that is such a great quote. And yeah, I have shared that quote a number of times. And um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name. It'll come to me, the lady that... Um, it was on NPR, actually, and if I recall, she was a Quaker minister. Um, but, you know, having grown up in, in liberal Protestantism myself, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I realized that, you know, um, because, Bill, let, let me say this. A lot of what passes for Christianity today is really not Christian because the the core of Christianity is the death, deity, and resurrection of Jesus. Deity, death, resurrection. He is the Son of God. He died on the cross to pay for our sins, mm -hmm. and we are saved by putting our faith in Jesus. Now, you can have good works, and you can have moral initiatives and all sorts of things, but if you're not proclaiming that Jesus, the Son of God, is the doorway to heaven. Um, you're not proclaiming Christianity. It was a, I'm sorry, a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell. That's it, yep. And uh, this, 
I, I got to repeat it. Christopher Hitchens said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. And amen. This is how the atheist is schooling the liberal <laughs> The liberal Christian. Christian, yeah. And she says, let me go someplace else. She quickly said, let's cut to a commercial. Right. Because it's true. And, and I want to say, look, I grew up in a very, very exceedingly liberal denomination. I, I was a brazen believer in evolution. In fact, when I was in college, and look, I was, I was in church every Sunday. I, I might have been egregiously hungover. <laughs> but I, I, in, in my whole life, honestly, you could count on ten fingers the Sundays I've missed. Mm -hmm. But I called myself a philosophical anarchist. My heroes were Jim Morrison and John Lennon. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I used to tell people I was a philosophical anarchist. I, I wanted... LSD legalized. I was I was a, a knucklehead punk. Wow. But when I came to Christ, the Word of God reordered my mind. Amen. And I had to admit, admit that I was wrong. That's fantastic. Alex, thank you so much. It's so nice to hear your voice again. Well, Bill, you're wonderful, and it's always an honor to be on the Thanks. great Faith Radio Network. I will hopefully see you again in a couple of weeks. Yes. Yep. Dr. Alex McFarlane, you go to alexmcfarlane.com. Take a little break, and we're going to jump right into John 3.16 with Jeff Redorn. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.